Love him or hate him, Tim Tebow is among the greatest college quarterbacks of all time. He led the Florida Gators to two BCS uh, national championships. He was the first sophomore to win the Heisman Trophy. When he graduated from Florida, he held five NCAA, 14 SEC, and 28 University of Florida records. And then he was drafted uh, in the first round, 25th pick overall by the Denver Broncos in 2010. Now, my family uh, lived in Pittsburgh when the Steelers made the playoffs in 2011. Their first game was against the Denver Broncos, led by none other than Tim Tebow. And we watched the game as a youth group. And the Steelers, uh, they were down and they made a comeback in that game and sent it into overtime. Now, the Broncos won the, co- the coin toss, and then Pittsburgh kicked off, and it was a touchback, so the, the Broncos received it at the 20. Now, keep in mind, I'm a Steelers fan. I have a terrible towel, folks, and I swing it when I watch the, the Steelers play. And, and, uh, and I was watching the game with Steelers fans uh, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. Okay, on the first play of overtime, Tim Tebow drops back and hits Demarius Thomas across the middle for an 80-yard touchdown to win the game. Steelers lose. End of the season, end of the hopes for this another Super Bowl. You know what happened? The room exploded with cheers. It exploded with cheers. How does that happen in Pittsburgh with Steelers fans? We celebrated Tim Tebow's touchdown pass to Demarius Thomas, which ended it all for the Steelers. How can something like that be? Well, that for Tebow, it just that season and that moment, it was almost miraculous. It was like it was supernatural. Uh, Our celebration was rooted in Tim Tebow's supernatural story. Tim Tebow is farmer tough. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Farmer tough, he, was an incre- he is an incredibly hard worker. His rookie season in the NFL, 30 minutes after training camp ended, the practice ended, Tebow was the only player on the field still going at it, working, working. And his teammate, Champ Bailey, he said this, see that? That's Tebow. It's long after practice and he's still out there. That's what he does. That's not for show. He's not just doing that because the media is here today. He does that every day. But even more than his work ethic, Tim Tebow is a devoted Christian. He's an outspoken Christian. He played football for the glory of Jesus Christ, and he told people about Jesus. That's how they knew. People saw hard work and the gospel united in Tim Tebow. When the gospel changes a person, it changes their attitude, and it changes their work habits. When believers do excellent work, what does it say about the gospel? When believers or Christians complain, cut corners, backstab, badmouth, cheat, or just loaf, what does it say about the gospel? Before we get too far, let me get this out there. God's son humbled himself, came from heaven to earth, and took on the form of a slave. And went to work to serve us, obeying every little nuance of God's authoritative law. He never complained. 
He never argued, never cut corners, never backstabbed, never badmouthed, never cheated, and never dilly-dallied. And because of his faithful work, because of his hard work, because of his covenant work, God highly exalted him. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Trust Jesus to make you like him. Humble yourself and assume the identity of a slave. Now here's where I'm headed. Honor your boss and work hard so that the gospel can be revered instead of reviled. That's pretty simple to get. Honor your boss and work hard so that the gospel can be uh, revered instead of reviled. Your attitude and work must tell of the greatness of Jesus. People need to see God's greatness uh, and grace in your work habits and in your productivity. So far in 1 Timothy, it's been the gospel applied in honor for widows in double honor for elders, and now you'll notice that it's all honor for masters. So how we honor our employers, or you could say teachers, uh, kids, or college students, uh, or you could say supervisors or superiors, flows out of the gospel at work in us. But Before we unpack the text, here's a helpful bit about modern and ancient slavery. The Greek noun doulos, or slave, appears 126 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. Uh, Jesus used slavery in his teaching uh, and, and description of the Christian life. The theme of slavery is so common in Scripture, I would argue that to really understand the gospel and our identity in Christ, you have to understand slavery. Now, that being said... Many critics of the Bible use that very thought to discredit the Bible's authority and therein the entire Christian faith. They say, how can we trust the Bible if the Bible is wrong on the issue of slavery? Well, ironically, during an anti-bullying speech, atheist Dan Savage went on a Bible-bashing, expletive-filled rant against the Bible in a lecture to high school students. And he said that the Bible is a radically pro-slavery document. He said this, quote, The Bible got the easiest moral question that humanity has ever faced wrong. Slavery. What are the odds that the Bible got something as complicated as human sexuality wrong 100%? End of quote. Now, this sermon is not an argument to defend the reliability uh, or the authority of Scripture, nor is it an answer to the slavery question. And that would be, that would be good for a sermon to do that, but that's not this one. But perhaps the, a bit of historical background may help you interpret Paul in verses 1 and 2 more faithfully. We're tempted to read slave in Scripture and then to, to, to get our minds to the African slave trade of the 18th and the 19th centuries. And that's anachronistic and unfair because slavery in the Greco-Roman world was different. Scholar Dr. Gary Meters said this, slavery in the biblical world was complex and normally very different than the slavery of the 18th and 19th century Western world. Uh, The African slave trade thrived uh, by at least three horrible anti-gospel ideals. Number one, racism. Number two, abduction, and number three, lifelong enslavement. 
The Bible condemns racism. All humans are made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. By shedding his blood, Jesus Christ ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5.9. Racism is anti-God, considering the ethnic diversity of the kingdom of God. The Bible condemns abduction. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul outright condemned slave dealing or kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. He used the word enslavers. You might remember that. In a long list of horrible sins. A practice condemned by Exodus 21, verse 16, the law of God, which states, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you understand what that, that's saying? Slave dealing and slaveholding were both worthy of the death penalty in Israel. Slavery was allowed in Israel. Now, that's not to say that it was God's ideal will, uh, but though it was allowed, it was highly uh, regulated to promote fairness and to promote uh, benevolence. It was often voluntary and was not lifelong. Consider Exodus 21. Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. Six years was the maximum duration unless the slave chose to remain a slave for his own benefit. Racism, abduction, and lifelong uh, enslavement marked the African slave trade of the 18th and 19th century and any slavery of that form an intolerable evil. When Paul wrote his letters, slavery was much different. Not necessarily good in the ultimate sense, but much different. And that reality must be considered when interpreting Paul and all of Scripture. Tim Keller noted this, quote, while much can be said about this subject, no kidding, there's a lot that could be said, it is important to remember that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not the same as the New World institution that developed in the wake of the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's time was not race-based and was seldom lifelong. It was more like what we would call indentured servitude, end of quote. Slavery in ancient times should not be romanticized, should not be romanticized, nor equated with God's best. But some aspects about it might actually surprise you and help you to understand the Bible's approach to slavery in its historic context. Slavery was widespread in the Greco-Roman world. Millions were slaves, possibly one-third of the entire population of the world. And some estimate as many as one out of every two people in the Near East were slaves. Slavery was often voluntary, and for a limited time, as a social and economic advantage for the slave, a preferable way for the slave to pay off debt in many cases, or to escape poverty, or to escape starvation, or even to learn a trade and to be trained. Slaves were uh, doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants, and in some cases entrusted with large amounts of money and a great deal of responsibility. Some would say that no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery, and that indentured labor was considered a given. Many slaves were treated very well. 
Brutality aside, which did exist, but if we put that aside, no one including slaves thought that slavery should be abolished in every form. Some slaves owned slaves. Sometimes slaves were more intelligent and better educated than their owners. Slaves were generally permitted to work for pay and to save enough to buy their freedom. And in some cases, built successful businesses for their benefit and for their master's benefit. In some cases, freed slaves would continue to work for their former uh, master as free men, even taking the family name in some circumstances. Those slaves were not allowed to leave their master uh, and change jobs during their enslavement. They generally served for an average of 10 years, again, often not lifelong. Uh, Slavery provided a household. It provided a certain security for the slave, and enslavement could serve for social and economic advancement as an eventual free person when that day came. Now, let's take our minds for a moment to Joseph. Though it was absolutely evil for Joseph to be abducted and sold into slavery, it was evil for Potiphar uh, to, to purchase Joseph, all right? The whole situation was bad from the beginning. Consider the tail end of it that Potiphar was a high-ranking officer of Pharaoh and Joseph uh, in the house of Potiphar became a successful man. Potiphar entrusted Joseph with the affairs of his entire house and as Potiphar's slave, Joseph became among the elites in Egypt. So when you read the Bible, uh, things in the Bible like slaves obey your earthly masters, And masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. You have to understand them uh, apart from from the African slave trade of the the, uh, whatever centuries it was, 17th and 18th, 18th and 19th. There we go. That's the one. And understand it within its ancient historical context. That's hard for us to do today. There's so much baggage with this and so much pain associated with it. But we have to try to get our minds into the ancient context of uh, the Roman Empire. And just to make sure that we understand that the Bible is far from being a radically pro-slavery document, consider Philemon 16 and 17, uh, where Paul told Philemon to receive his slave Onesimus back as a beloved brother, a beloved brother in Christ. Consider 1 Corinthians 7.21 where Paul recommended that Christian slaves try to gain their freedom, which was possible at that time. Consider 1 Corinthians 7.23 where Paul actually said, do not become slaves of men. He prohibited Christians from entering into voluntary slavery for social and economic advancement. When one rightly understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies to all of life, they realize how the gospel destabilizes slavery as an institution. Uh, Dr. Denny Burke said this, quote, the Bible completely undermines all the defining features of slavery, kidnapping, coercive violence, treating people like property rather than like brothers created in the image of God. Tim Keller adds this, biblical theology destroyed the coercive heart of the institution of slavery within the Christian community and finally led Christians to abolish the inevitably oppression-prone institution itself. Now, hopefully, all of that uh, helps you better interpret Paul and better apply these two verses to your life. Now, 
As we go, I want to create a foundational point that's very important as we head into the two verses. The gospel and our identity in Christ are the impulse of our work. The gospel and our identity in Christ are the impulse of our work. Slavery is central to the gospel. We were slaves of sin. That's how the Bible describes us. Apart from Christ, sin is our slave master driving us away from God to kill us. But along came a great emancipator who set us free. Jesus showed up to the slave market of sin. He saw us in our shameful and pitiful state. He had compassion on us and he bought our freedom with his blood on the cross. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, Paul said. Christ made us free by unlocking the the shackles, the chains of our sin. And yet, as truly free men and as truly free women, we are also slaves of the Master who bought us. When Christ bought our freedom, ownership changed hands. Jesus became our new master. Paul said, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. The gospel changes our identity by changing our master. We are finally free. We are no longer in bondage to sin. But brothers and sisters, at the same time, we are enslaved to Christ. Paul began Romans with Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He began Titus with Paul, a slave of God. James began his letter with James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen closely to Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Folks, the Bible is obvious. If you are a true Christian, you are a slave of Christ. Once a slave of sin, now by grace alone you belong to Jesus, your master. You are his slave, but you are more than that. You are also a son and a co-heir with Christ. Why does God use such, such potent imagery, such words in Scripture to describe the Christian life, our identity in Christ? Because God wants you to know what Christ has done to buy you, to have you. And he wants you to know that you belong to him. So that strong language is there to remind you of the the truth of the gospel. You are not your own, a reality which influences how you work for your boss. The point is important, this point, uh, for understanding 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, because knowing your true identity in Christ Uh, will inevitably impact your attitude and your habits at work. So belonging to Christ your master means it is now your desire to please your master in everything that you do, including how you work. To translate doulos as servants or bondservants instead of slave, as most English translations do, even the beloved ESV, 
it lessens the impact of Christ's possession of his people, which is awesome and we need to feel the weight of that. We belong to him. Belonging to God as slave is entirely wonderful, entirely different than any construction of slavery we have in our minds when considering God's law leads us to joy and that God created us to glorify and enjoy him forever. So with the ancient practice of slavery in mind, let's try to appreciate Paul's point here in verses 1 and 2. And I think Dr. Riken sets the stage for us really well. He said this, Just as the relationship between master and slave was the primary economic relationship in the ancient world, so the relationship between boss and employee is the primary economic relationship in the world today, and we should apply the biblical teaching accordingly. So how should the gospel play out in our work? How we interact with our employer, in our work habits, in our attitudes. Well, consider this point. Believers must honor their employers so the gospel is revered instead of reviled. So the gospel is revered instead of reviled. Paul said in verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Yes, some Christians uh, in the Ephesian church were legally owned as slaves. Their masters determined their livelihood and purpose. Slavery was their yoke. They were joined to their masters, and they were to regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Now, if that's true of slaves in the ancient world, how much truer is it applicable for us today with our employers as Christians? Ponder the word regard. That's a very important word. It means to deem or to consider or to count or to reckon. If your boss is a tyrant, a tyrant driving he or she may not actually be worthy of double honor. They might not be worthy of the honor that that God asks you to give. What Paul is saying is to consider them worthy of all honor. So this illustration might might help you to to get this. There's a great line in the movie uh, Band of Brothers where Captain Herbert Sobel passes uh, Major Dick Winters and the two men, they had a past... And so the tension was high in the moment, and Sobel fails to salute Winters as the higher-ranking officer. He looks the other way. And so Major Winters calls out, Captain Sobel, we salute the rank, not the man. Now that's kind of the idea here. Our employers, regardless of their personal integrity by virtue of their God-given authority over us, deserve our utmost respect our utmost honor, because our master who purchased us with his own life commands that we give the honor. By regarding our employers worthy of all honor, we honor our supreme master who calls all the shots. See, our our earthly boss, they call a few shots. But our master Jesus calls all the shots, cherishing God's authority over us will compel us to obey his call to honor, respect, and submit to earthly authority. 
We've seen this word honor in chapter 1, verse 17, and in chapter 5, verse 17, with widows and elders. In those places, honor included actually more than respect. It was a form of payment. We must pay our employers respect, but we also must pay them our hard work. They pay us, but it's only in exchange for hard work that benefits them, that we're giving them. It's not about the character of your boss. It's not about the integrity of your boss, but about your character and your integrity in how you treat your boss for the glory of God alone. Now, in our individualism of America, which has not served us well, all right, I don't answer to anybody. I don't like authority. Well, that right there is so anti-biblical, okay? But in in that thinking, um, we might balk at this and, and think, but you don't know my boss. Have you worked where I've worked? Oh, let me tell you the stories. Sit down, let me put on the coffee. Well, consider 1 Peter 2.18. This is God's word for you and for me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There is no out. As Christians, this is what we must do for the love of Jesus. That command is directly from Jesus to people who want to follow Him. To His people... Now, today, we have the freedom to change jobs if there are some things that we're like, this just is not right. i got to get out of this place. We, we can change jobs, and that can be a good thing. We have that freedom. But whoever we are working for at that time, we owe them our respect. We owe them our hard work. This is not easy. In fact, if I can be honest with you, it's impossible. You can't do this. You can't. The Christian life is impossible apart from grace, faith, and union with Christ. You cannot detach this command from the gospel. If you do, not only is it repulsive to you outside of the gospel, but it's impossible. You can't do it. You you can't just one day wake up apart from Jesus and his saving grace and say, I think today I'm going to honor the Christian work ethic. Uh, you can't. He won't put that desire in. He, you have to have his grace. You have to have Jesus. You have to be united to the supreme worker so that he can then live through you and you say, you know what, this is going to hurt, but I'm doing it for the glory of God because Jesus is right with me. I'm lockstep with him. God, to God, it's very, very uh, precious and, and, and good that we do this. God is very gracious to give us a clear and a rational reason why we must do this impossible thing by his grace alone. Listen to it again. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's why. You, you are the body of Christ. You are the light of the world. You are a a spirit-filled man. You are a spirit-filled woman for the gospel to shine in you, through you. That's why God saved you. If you fail to give respect and hard work to your employers, God's name and Christian doctrine are blasphemed, insulted, slandered by you. 
For better or for worse, your work makes a theological statement about God. For Christians, the name of God and the word of God are precious. Oh, so precious. Nothing more important. So we work hard and we honor our employers so they can see the gospel in a positive light. They can see the gospel as beautiful. We, we, we want our work to help people revere the gospel, not revile the gospel. I like how Paul put it in Titus 2, 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorning it, our work should beautify the gospel. Mutiny doesn't beautify the gospel. Laziness doesn't beautify the gospel. Dishonesty doesn't beautify the gospel. Please understand that God cares a lot about how you and I live. He cares a lot about how you and I work because his name is at stake. He put his seal on you. God's people, you have his seal so that you would make his name great through your work. God wants people to see your excellent work, to benefit from it, and to see his transformational grace in it all. It is for him. And in order for that to happen, you cannot be a closet Christian. If people don't know that you're doing it for the glory of God, they will not give glory to God. They have to know that you are a Christian. Your employers and your coworkers should know you're a Christian, not only by the way that you work, but also by what you say while you work. And, and I think this is epidemic among Christians to be closet Christians. I just want people to know it by the way that I work. Yes, and they need to hear you. Let people know. And if you're like, I can't evangelize. I've never shared Christ to, with anybody in my life. I'm more like, just, <laughs> all right, not, not for me. That's not the kind of person that I am. Would you challenge yourself maybe with just one simple thing? Tell one of your coworkers you're a Christian. That's not sharing the gospel. That's just saying what is most precious to you, Jesus. So maybe that's the first step that you could prime the pump, so to speak. I'll just tell someone I'm a Christian. That was big, you know, and I think you'll be blessed by doing that. Whatever your level of quality or enthusiasm at the end of the day, your work has made a tangible statement about God and about the truth of the Christian faith. So let me ask you a question. Is your work telling the truth about God or is your work telling a lie? about God and the gospel. You know, when it comes down to it, you're not really working for your boss. This is a great point. Those of you with tyrannical bosses, just cling to this, because this will really encourage you. You're not working for your boss. Read Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Read Colossians 3, through 25. When you work at home, when you go to the office, when you go to the shop, when you're on the work site, wherever you are, you're working for the Lord. 
You're working for the Lord. You're working for your master, Jesus Christ. Your time belongs to him. Your effort belongs to him. Your paycheck belongs to him. You're not working for men in the ultimate sense. You are duluete, or serving Christ as a slave through your hard work. And knowing that, it makes every, every bit of difference in your attitude and your work habits. When you get your identity in Christ. Apart from your identity in Christ, you'll have no idea what you're doing. The work will just be lousy. But when you know who you are in Christ and who your master is, your work takes on a whole new dimension that so many people just don't have. They don't get it. You give respect and hard work to your employer because you love and serve your master, Jesus, and you want to please him, and, and you won't ever really get that. You won't really ever understand until you've got your identity in Christ. You know who he has made you. Paul added this. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Believers must never disrespect their believing employers because they are family. Family. Um, Yes, in the first century, Christians own Christian slaves. Don't insert African slave trade, or that's going to take you to bad places. Not the same. Think more indentured servitude. Freedom in Christ was not a license to disrespect or to think against masters, nor to flee the agreement that was already made. In fact, some slaves would not have wanted to flee. That would have been in their lesser interest. So why should a Christian slave respect and work hard for their Christian master? Because they are brothers in Christ. And brothers united in Christ love each other and they do what is best for each other. Romans 12.10 is very fitting here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So some of you have Christian bosses. I hope that's a really good thing for you. It should be. It should be awesome. And And if you disrespect them, you are disrespecting your brother and sister in Christ who is united to Christ and who is united to you. So it's like one part of your body beating on another part of your body. It just doesn't make sense. You don't want to disrespect. And that's very serious when the body of Christ does that. It's detrimental to our health. It's detrimental to our joy. The household of God is to be categorized by familial love. Familial love, even in the workplace. The same kind of love that our father and our eldest brother gives us. That kind of love. Well, there's more to it. Paul added, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So then, believers must always serve their believing employers excellently for God's glory and the benefit of their employer. Notice three things in the middle of verse 2. When a Christian slave serves their Christian master with honor and respect and good service, their masters profit from them. Uh, Christians should want to profit their employers, especially their Christian employers. Uh, Second, the the masters are believers in verse 2, and that trust in and union with Christ and that shared faith and that partnership in the gospel is motivation to work excellently for the profit of their master. And third, the masters are beloved. Not only are the, or were the Christian masters beloved of God, but they were beloved of the slave. The slaves who served them. 
Love for the master is motivation to work excellently for the profit of the master. So all of this translates into I want my employer and brother in Christ to be successful and to profit from my good work so I will do really good work for them. And I also think that gratitude for the job and to God for giving you work is part of this as well. So have there been days where you show up to work and you consciously in your mind are thinking, um, how can I show love and respect to my Christian employer? How, how can I benefit them today? How can I serve them today? Have you hungered to work really, really hard um, so that they profit in their work and that they're successful? Every employer should receive the good work of their Christian employees, especially Christian employers. But beneath how you work for your employer is how you work for God. And you know what? In fact, even beneath that layer uh, is how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, worked for God and worked for you. Jesus did everything for the glory and honor of his Father in heaven, and his work achieved your redemption, his hard work. Now, via your union with Christ, the perfect slave, Christ lives in you to help you do everything for the glory and honor of your Father and Savior and to the, for the advantage of your employer, whether they're a believing employer or an unbelieving employer. It really doesn't change what we need to do. Paul said at the end of verse 2, please don't miss little phrases like this, teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. Pastor Timothy was to teach the gospel and then was to teach how the gospel works out and applies to work and all of life so that the gospel would be revered and not reviled. If more employers and more employees just got this principle, my last point, the preaching of the gospel equips believers to be excellent workers. Every Sunday that you feast on the gospel by faith and gospel-centered preaching and teaching, you are being equipped to live out the Christian life and you are being equipped to be the best worker you possibly can be, to, to give excellence to your employer. See, the gospel transforms you and when you are transformed, then your work ethic is transformed and how you go about doing your work and, and, and the attitude that you have when you do it. Most people in our culture have no idea how to work and what work is ultimately about. No clue. They're working blind. They might make money. They might have huge businesses and lots of employees, but they have no idea what it's all for. They're missing the point, uh, which is really sad because it drains their work of ultimate meaning, significance, and joy. It just drains their life of joy that they could have. They actually miss out, and that should lead us to compassion for people who don't get it. But as a Christian, you see, you can connect the dots. You can put it all together and say, I get it. I know why I'm doing this. This is hard I know the challenge ahead of me, but I can do this for the glory of Christ, and he is with me, and so it makes sense to me what my master is asking me to do, and it's for my best, and this is great. I love to do it for God's glory. So as a Christian, you can see how the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sovereign grace of God connect to your work week when you wake up and you go. Um, the gospel preached infuses your life 
and your work with glorious purpose and meaning and eternal value, whether you're a factory worker or a plumber or a salesman or an attorney or a doctor or a manual laborer or whatever you do, because it is ultimately about how you serve God, how God has served you in Christ, all for the glory and honor of God. When the gospel is applied, as Paul is appealing in these two verses, an entire economy can change. You ever think about that? If we just did it God's way, how economics would be different? Uh, Think about that. I'll leave you with this one thought. Is being a slave beneath you? Well, uh, it wasn't beneath Christ. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Philippians 2.7. The best worker in the world the most successful and the best worker the world has ever seen was treated like garbage every day. All he did was glorious and beautiful work and excellent work for the glory of God and we thanked him by crucifying him. How precious, how precious is our master's work, his work, because through it, we became his. We became his. To belong to him. That's amazing. So let's show our employers how grateful we are that Christ worked and bought us by working hard for their benefit. Let them see Jesus. Let them see the gospel in our work. Honor your boss and work hard so that the gospel will be revered instead of reviled. Father, thank you for this clear truth. It's really simple today. This is not hard to understand. Uh, But it is impossible to do apart from your sovereign grace at work in us. We need your gospel to awaken in us a work ethic and attitude that shouts your glory and beauty. Far too many times people see us mumble and groan and to complain about our job that you gave us. Kindly. So, God, even in the worst circumstances, would you empower us as weak people uh, that, God, we would be able to see our work as a way to glorify you and to make the gospel look awesome. And, God, we need your help to do that. So thank you for your, your wonderful grace to us and your patience as we strive to please you, but as we fall short, and yet you love us still, and you welcome us, every day, saying, oh, my child, uh, would you walk with me? Allow my power to work in your work. And so, God, thank you. Thank you for not abandoning us in our laziness, but help us to work harder and harder for your glory and to also rest according to your will and to have a proper work balance with life and family and uh, taking time off. May we not be workaholics, Um, but rather to have the right balance that you have called us to do, uh, to have and to give our best to our employers. In Jesus' name, amen.